and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Jonathan Eig back to the program today for the second of our two-part conversation about his new exhaustive biography of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., entitled King, A Life, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us again to keep talking about your book, King, about the life and times of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking to you. One of your main aims with the book is to show the human side of Dr. King. Can you share with us kind of the most delightful thing that you found anew in Dr. King's life during all your research? Well, it was really important to me to remind people of his humanity and, you know, the fact that he chewed his fingernails, that he had a pet dog as a kid, another one for his kids when he was an adult, that he, he liked to yell when he watched TV. He would yell at the game shows, just like most of us do. But just to give you one of my favorite examples, and I found this in some notes of a reporter who was traveling with King, and this detail didn't make it into his story. King took his kids to the swimming pool one day, and his little girl, Bernice, fell and scraped her knee on the side of the pool and came over to her daddy crying with her, you know, blood running down her knee. And King was eating a piece of chicken at the time, you know, the barbecuing, and he grabbed a piece of chicken and, and rubbed it on her knee and said, you know, there's nothing better for a scraped knee than, than a piece of fried chicken. And he was just distracting her in this lovely way, uh, like any good dad, you know, telling you that, you know, giving the boo-boo a kiss, but with a, with a piece of fried chicken. And uh, those little moments of grace and humanity that I think are so important, especially when you're dealing with a figure who's been turned into a, you know, a 30-foot monument in Washington, D.C., and who we tend to treat as a monument and, and not a person sometimes. Because he traveled so much in his efforts, did he ever express in any open way about his regrets about not spending more time with his children? Yeah, he talked about it a lot. He felt like he was called by God to this mission. The mission took over his life, disrupted everything he had planned. You know, he really wanted to be a college professor or a university president someday and live this very serene intellectual life while still pushing for justice, but didn't work out the way he had planned. And and his family life didn't work out the way he had planned either. You know, he had four beautiful children and and he did not get to spend much time with them. When he did come home, he was a doting father. He was really fun. He liked to get down on the rug and tumble with them and play in the backyard and get dirty. But, you know, he'd be gone sometimes weeks at a time and then he'd be in jail sometimes completely out of contact, scaring the wits out of the kids. And they knew that he belonged to the world. They saw him on TV more than they saw him at home sometimes. That was really hard for him, really hard on Coretta too. But he felt like that was what destiny had called him to do. And you mentioned his his original desire to be an academic. And it seemed early on in his preaching that he was prone to that more cerebral style, using great quotations from other writers. But he did evolve that style and become very inspirational in his approach to preaching. It's good to remember that, you know, King came from a family of country preachers. Uh, that his father and grandfather learned to, to preach the Bible before they really learned to read and, and went back and got their education later. And King was very much inspired by this, but he was also a little bit off put by it. He didn't like the emotionalism. He didn't like the shouting and the foot stomping. You know, he wanted to be a more intellectual kind of a preacher, but he he nevertheless had that in his bones. You know, he could do it <laughs> if he wanted to. And he combined that intellectualism with the emotion in a way that really nobody has ever done better before or since. And, and that's what's so great about King. You know, he takes what he's been given from his ancestors and builds on it. And 
you know, combines what he's learned in college and in seminary and brings it all together in this package that, you know, is so inspiring and so challenging. He's a great intellectual and he's a great preacher and, and he knows it. I think he loves being in the pulpit. And it seems like a lot of us men are prone to, in our early lives, reacting against our fathers and trying to do something different. And then we eventually become them in good ways and bad. No question about that. And and King's father, Daddy King, everybody called him, Martin Luther King Sr., was a very strong, dynamic, sometimes overbearing person. He, he, you know, he was violent with his kids. He spanked them, had a temper. And King very much you know, grew up afraid of conflict with his father, afraid of confrontation. And that affects him all his life. He's always trying to be different, better, more advanced in many ways than his father, but he also feels a great draw to him and can't really say no. You know, his father's often telling him, you know, pull back, you know, you're, you're getting too deep. This is too dangerous. I want you to quit. And King can't quit, but he also has a hard time saying no to his father. And, and he tends to just say, okay, dad, thank you, without ever really engaging in, a, in, a, in an argument. And, and you see that too in King's relationship with the elders of the civil rights movement. He has a very difficult time confronting people like Roy Wilkins or A. Philip Randolph. He's very um, humble and in some ways, you know, um, almost intimidated by these older men. Well, and you mentioned someone says that he has a very difficult time saying no. He tends to say yes to everyone that comes his way. Yeah, including speaking engagements, including requests from friends to visit, including women. He's just somebody who, who has a hard time saying no. And, and in meetings, you know, when they're discussing strategy, when he's got all of his lieutenants around the conference table and there are different ideas about how to approach this next protest or this next phase of the movement, King really tends to listen. One of his great qualities as a leader is that he's a good listener and he tries to help achieve group consensus rather than ruling by the force of his power as the leader of the, of the movement or the leader of the SCLC. Sometimes that's frustrating because he seems indecisive but he likes to try to really help the opinions coalesce rather than forcing anything on anybody. Once he and his family moved back to Atlanta from Montgomery and his schedule was so overbooked, how often did he have a chance to preach at Ebenezer? Not as often as he did in the early part of his career when he was in Montgomery. When he goes back to Atlanta, his father is still the the, the head preacher at Ebenezer, and, and King is probably preaching there no more than once or twice a month, but he still views it as an important responsibility. And, and he's still trying to make time for the members of the congregation who need counseling, performing weddings and funerals. You know, he takes his job really seriously, but it's just a sign of just how much demand there is for his attention. And he's being asked to the White House for conferences. He's being asked to, to, to lecture all over the world. And he still is trying as best he can to fulfill his obligations as the, as the pastor in his, in his community. So it's, um, it's a lot of stress. It was amusing to see that James Baldwin said that he was unique for a preacher and that he actually liked him. <laughs> yeah, King was a really likable person. And everywhere he goes, you see it. People enjoyed his company. He was he was not a massive egotist. He was not, you know, a, a snooty intellectual. He was not a firebrand. He he loved to laugh. You know, he would drive long hours through the night with his staff members and he would stay up, you know, keeping them company rather than when he needed to sleep, he would still keep them company, tell jokes, suggest little pit stops for food. He was a big eater, loved, loved his Southern cooking. He was a fun guy to be around. He was not opposed, as many Baptists were, to having an occasional tipple or even dancing, and, and that set him at odds with his father at times. 
he actually gave us a speech once as, as a teenager at a, at a gathering of, of young Baptists where he tried to make the argument that dancing itself should not be considered a sin. It should depend on the state of mind when you're dancing. If your mind is pure, there should be no problem with dancing. So even then he was challenging convention, challenging uh, theology of his elders. And yes, in later life, he did smoke cigarettes and he, he drank. Of course, as we mentioned, he was not a faithful husband. So he he knew what it what it meant to be a sinner, and and he wrestled with that. He probably did read Peter Abelard back in the day and realized that faith is tested when you face temptation and not avoid it. That's right, and uh, it's a it's an important part of all religion that that temptation exists. We are not all expected to be perfect. The, the Bible is full of heroes who are flawed. You mentioned in our previous interview about this that plagiarism was something that King did. You know he was not assiduous in his citing of sources in his written material. Was there any repercussions or did anybody address this during his lifetime? Not really. You know, he got away with it for the most part during his lifetime. And, and you know, it started early. He started plagiarizing when he was in high school. He, he was a finalist in a public speaking contest. And I discovered that his speech for that contest was heavily plagiarized. And then he went to Boston University and plagiarized his doctoral dissertation. And he, he plagiarized from another dissertation that had been written just a few years earlier and submitted to the same advisor. So it appears that he wasn't really worried about getting caught, that he considered this you know, a way of doing business that worked for him. He faced no real, real repercussions for it. And of course, you know, preachers have always borrowed from other preachers, and he did that a lot too. You know, I Have a Dream is really inspired by Langston Hughes. And King, I think, felt like at least when he was in the pulpit, it was acceptable because preachers love to borrow and improvise based on others they'd heard. But it is a little bit surprising that he got away with it as often, as much as he did in, in, in the academic setting, at least. It is amusing to see that over time, plagiarism became a bigger deal. And one of Joe Biden's early attempts at running for president was sidelined because he had forgot to attribute some British politician in one of his speeches and was accused of plagiarism for that. And then we move forward into the Trump administration. And when the first lady plagiarized Michelle Obama's writings for some of her writings, then it wasn't a big deal anymore. Yeah, it's a fluid situation. And I feel like the standards are, are perhaps dropping that we, especially now with the AI, you know, everything is, <laughs> nobody knows what's original anymore. Maybe King today would have just, you know, fed his, his dissertation through a chat bot and did it that way. Who knows? But, you know, I think it's another example of the fact that, that he talked about all the time that humans don't have to be perfect to make a difference and to fight for change. In its end, he did not become an academic and become like the president of a university or a dean in which that would have been a bigger deal. His aim was to transform America and hopefully humanity. And at that point, you know, where's the sin there? That's right. And you know, had he gone into an academic setting, maybe it would have cost him more dearly. You know, it's interesting to think about that because even in the early days of the Montgomery bus boycott, before he had really been established as the civil rights leader, he was offered a job at Dillard University in New Orleans as the dean of the chapel there. But the construction was going slower than they expected. So they had to postpone the job offer. And had he accepted that job, who knows how differently, you know, world history might have might have been. And who knows whether King would have found a way to make an academic career. Maybe he would have been a, a lecturer and a writer and a public intellectual and never the head of the civil rights movement. And you can only speculate as to what the history might have looked like in that case. But I think King found his true calling without question. And, and I guess perhaps 
his academics were not his true calling. It is amazing, though, how many kind of like sliding door moments there were throughout his life. Oh, no question about it. Things could have gone one way or another. Yeah, and that, that's true for all of history. But I think I prefer to focus on the positive and, and to say that he really was the perfect man in the perfect place at the perfect time. You know, had he accepted a pulpit somewhere other than Montgomery, we may never have heard of him. Had the Montgomery bus boycott not been such a great success, we might never have heard of him. Had the nation not really responded, if he had, you know, the beautiful thing about King is that when that Montgomery bus boycott begins, he's not just in the right place at the right time, but he's delivering just the right message too. You know, he's combining the philosophical and the religious and the patriotic. You know, he's saying that for this nation to fulfill its promise to be the great democracy that we set out to become, we have to do this moral justice. We have to include everybody. We have to, you know, end our racism. And that patriotic religious view that we can live up to the words of the Constitution and the Bible is really inspiring. And I think, you know, it's very hard to imagine anyone else finding that perfect blend that King finds. He's just he's just made for that moment. Someone mentioned in the book that it was so appropriate that the Montgomery bus boycott would kind of like set the stage for his career and the fact that you couldn't see a more obvious and clear unification of the classes, at least of African-Americans, that everyone from a street sweeper to a doctor and a lawyer were unified in this goal of achieving dignity and equal treatment in Montgomery. It's a perfect moment again because the buses are this, this great symbol. It's one of the few places that black and white people in the deep south are forced together. So they become this little petri dish of segregation. You're putting black people and white and white people together in these, these tightly confined buses, forcing them to jostle for seats, figuring out who can sit where and who gets to decide who sits where. And finally, the, the indignity of it, the harassment grows so great that black people say, we're not going to take it anymore. And they bring the system to a halt by refusing to ride the buses. The entire city shudders, the economy shudders, the bus company is shuttered, and they're able to call the nation's attention to this condition. And, and that's really a wake-up call for much of America. Many Americans in the, in the North, even though they're segregated in their own ways, have never really confronted the abject horror of this kind of segregation. And King is able to crystallize it, and the protesters are able to call attention to it in a way that Americans have never really seen before. So again, it's almost miraculous to think how all these forces came together. And one of King's best friends and right-hand men was Ralph Abernathy. How did Abernathy react to essentially being a right-hand man and not the center of attention over all those years? Abernathy's is great hero in a way, because he's constantly letting himself be placed in the, in the secondary position when he might have been the leader. And in fact, you know, he meets King when he shows up at a concert in Atlanta where he, his date canceled on him at the last minute. He shows up for this concert alone and he sees his date on the arms of Martin Luther King. That's how he first meets Martin Luther King. And that becomes a pattern for the rest of his life. He's always playing second fiddle to King and King remains his best friend. Abernathy is completely loyal and completely willing to sacrifice his own ego to support the cause and to support his friend and even to make sure that he gets locked up too, that Abernathy goes to jail too when King goes to jail because he wants to be there to make sure that, that King is okay, that he's emotionally okay, able to survive those incarcerations. So I love Ralph Abernathy. He's a great hero. And going back and interviewing people from the era who are still with us, did any of them still kind of hold any grudges against King if they weren't 100% with him personally? 
back then or had time kind of salved those wounds? No, there were still people who felt like King was not, I wouldn't say a hot dog, but that he captured too much of the attention and that we did a disservice to all of the other people working on the ground, all the other activists who were, you know, especially working at grassroots in the communities to register voters and to educate voters, that paying all this attention to King kind of sapped them of the attention they deserved. But, you know, you didn't find too many people who um, had personal disdain for King. And I think that he really inspired not just respect, but affection among people who were in the cause. And even if they disagreed with some of his beliefs, you know, like I interviewed James Meredith, who thought at times that King was moving too slowly and too conservatively, still deeply admired him and, and, and enjoyed his company. Coretta Scott King, she has always come across as this almost more than regal person, as someone of just such great dignity and, and carriage of herself, but she came from even humbler origins than King did. Right. She grew up in Marion, Alabama on a, on a farm, and her parents were, were very ambitious, uh, owned some of their own land and started their own businesses. But, you know, Coretta came from much more humble roots than her husband, but she managed to go to terrific school sponsored by integrationists and then went to Antioch College and uh, another integrated school where she really became an activist in her own right. And she was an incredibly brave and, and inspiring person. And I think big part of why King fell in love with her was because she had that experience as an activist. You know, King dated lots of beautiful, intelligent women, but very few with the background that Coretta had already when at the time they met in, in activism. And I think in many ways, you know, some people describe their relationship as, as almost like a business relationship, that they were this, these terrific partners in civil rights. Um, of course, it was not an equal partnership because Martin Luther King insisted that his wife be the housewife and that she not engage in as many activities outside the home that as Coretta would have liked. But nevertheless, it's a very interesting and, and very dynamic marriage. And it was typical for the time that, you know, he loved these intelligent, beautiful, capable women, but almost always sidelined them when it came into the cause. Yeah, this is one of the other big criticisms of King, and, and he heard it in his lifetime from not just from his wife, but from other activists like Ella Baker. Yeah, they said that he was prejudiced, that he did not appreciate the contributions of women, did not appreciate their potential for leadership. Ella Baker was made temporary head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and many people felt like she should have had the, the job full time, but that King and, and others, you know, as, a, as Southern Baptist ministers were prejudiced. They did not see women as um, as as figures capable of that kind of leadership, and they just tended to treat them as uh, subordinates. And that's one of King's real blind spots. And we just saw that recently at the most recent gathering of the Southern Baptist Convention, that they have excommunicated churches who have women as pastors. Yeah, we're still living with, with the impact of that, for sure. Early on, a lot of people noted that King dressed very well. He paid attention and was stylish and dapper. And as time grew on, he became very conscious of how he's perceived, and he so much did not want to be seen as profiting personally from his efforts, and that led to almost kind of a sense of privation for his own family. That's right. You know, he embraced kind of a vow of poverty. When he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he donated the entire award to the cause, to the, mostly to the SCLC, and kept none for his family. They lived in a very modest house. They rented for a long time. When they finally bought their own house, he insisted on living in a um, community that was far from wealthy. And the home was so modest that when Coretta asked if they could at least put some carpeting down on the floors, 
King said no, that the carpeting would be perceived as a, as a sign of luxury. She could put carpeting in the bedroom where nobody would see it, but not in the, uh, in the living room or the dining room. And that's just how seriously he took his mission as a leader and as a moral leader. He didn't want anybody to remotely think that he was profiting from his fame, even from his book sales. You know, he did not keep the money from most of those. His friends were concerned about him. They were worried that Coretta was suffering. Harry Belafonte paid for a housekeeper. Harry Belafonte bought life insurance policy for King, set up a fund to take care of the kids' schooling. But King was disdainful of that. He really wanted to live a, a modest, humble life. So much so that when they moved to Chicago to fight against housing discrimination and other discrimination, that he put them in, a, in pretty dire circumstances in where they were living. He did. And that was not just because of his personal beliefs. He was trying to send a message that slumlords in, in Chicago and other cities were taking advantage of the poor, charging you know, exorbitant rates for apartments that were, that were not even livable. So King set up in one of those virtually unlivable apartments to show the world, to call the media's attention to how people in the North were living in poverty and how landlords were taking advantage of their poverty and profiting by it. And King set out to call attention to that and to force the city to take up some reforms. Of course, King credits Mohandas Gandhi for part of his approach to nonviolence. And I think sometimes we kind of lose sight of who Gandhi was and the fact that this was a man who led the defeat of the most powerful empire on planet Earth at its time. And that, you know, it's just not the nonviolence, but there is a very tangible political goal that is behind this. That's right. It's one thing to celebrate these men as being visionaries and advocates of nonviolence, but it's important to remember that they were practical and that they had a goal and they set out to achieve it and they accomplished enormous amounts. You know, we talk about other activists of the era like, you know, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, people who were heroes for their rebelliousness. But it's very rare to find a rebel hero who actually achieves as much as these men did, as Martin Luther King and Gandhi did. Because, you know, King, unlike Malcolm X, was doing much more than just speaking out. He was fighting for tangible reforms. He had helped accomplish some of the most important legislation in this nation's history. And same thing goes for Gandhi. These are people who did not just talk and they did not just inspire protest. They worked toward concrete change and made a real difference in, in the fabric of our, of our nations. And that, to me, is what makes King so special. Now, in addition to writing about Dr. King and Muhammad Ali, you've also written a history of the birth control pill. And while researching these times and see everything that people fought through in order to achieve either fame or legislative change or a whole societal change for women, and to see that all of these things are still under attack, it just must be very kind of dispiriting in a way for you. Well, it's dispiriting, but it's also inspiring because these are figures, you know, in, in the case of King, in the case of Margaret Sanger and, and Gregory Pincus and, and when it comes to the pill, people who recognized that they could change the world. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You know, Dr. King said the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And you've got to believe that it bends toward justice, uh, but you've also got to believe that you have to keep bending it. It doesn't necessarily happen by itself. And that's why, you know, it's worth writing about these figures, even if we seem to be suffering setbacks, even if, you know, women's reproductive rights are under attack again, even if, you know, racist acts and anti-Semitic acts are on the rise and affirmative action is being ruled unconstitutional and voting rights are under attack again. It just means that we have to look again at, at the lives like Kings and ask ourselves what we can do to keep pushing for change. You've written about these notable people who've 
accomplished much and been these guideposts for us to look at and live in our lives. But one of my favorite sections in the King book is the story of Francine Yeager and her trip to the March on Washington. Yeah, you know, I interviewed so many people who went to the March on Washington. And at first I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to get any of them into the book because it's about King and it's about this greatest speech of his life and the, the, you know, the pinnacle moment of his career, arguably, that day, August 28, 1963. And then I thought, no, I've, I've got to show the impact that King had on people, on everyday people. So I decided to include just two of the people I interviewed. Francine Yeager, who was this teenager from Chicago, who at the last minute threw some underwear and a, and a couple bottles of Pepsi into her backpack and got on a train for Washington and decided to be there for the March on Washington because she wanted to be a part of changing the world. And then the other person I featured in that chapter was a guy named Gunny Gundrum, who was a park ranger, white man, who was assigned to stand next to King during the speech and stop anybody who might try to attack him. And Gunny had never met a black person growing up and was quite comfortable using the N-word as a child. And when he joined the military, he was shocked to find out that his black fellow soldiers were not allowed to go into bars and restaurants in the town where they were training. And, and um to be standing next to Martin Luther King as he gave the speech was a life-changing moment for, for Gunny too. So I tried to write the I Have a Dream speech section in a way that showed not just King's words and his message, but showed how even right then in that moment, it was rippling through people's lives. As frustrated as King could be with white people who were in power in America and like the Kennedy's foot dragging and the shortcomings of LBJ and prosecuting the, the Vietnam War, there was one that did give him a lot of hope, and that was a scion of a very rich North Carolina family, Jay Blanton Belk. Yeah, I love this story because I met Mr. Belk a few years ago at a book fair, and he said, you know, I met Martin Luther King. And I said, yeah, sure. And he <laughs> told me the story about how when he was um, you know, a young man just out of college, he came from a very wealthy family, a department store owning family. He had just decided to get in the car and drive to Montgomery because he'd heard about Martin Luther King and he wanted to meet this man. And King invited him to his home and Coretta cooked for him. And he spent, you know, all day there just chatting. And then a few years later, when King was in Washington giving a speech, Belk invited King and his family to come and have dinner at this big house on Embassy Road that he was borrowing from a friend. And Blanton Belk went on to create Up With People, which you might remember from the, the 70s in particular, when they would send these, these little armies of kids around the world singing songs. And the idea was very much in principle with King's message of universal brotherhood. And Jay Blanton Belk really you know, gave his life to the ideals that, that he heard King espousing. And, and I just love how you, you just never know when you're, you know, what impact you're having on somebody and how those, those things are going to ripple from these little meetings and, and how speeches touch people and change their lives. That earnestness was underestimated by so many people in King, but it was one of his strengths. There's no question that, you know, King comes across to many, especially in the 60s, as this very square figure, almost never seen without the suit and tie, you know, dark colors only, especially as the 60s are going and, and hair is getting longer and black people are wearing afros and white people are wearing their hair down to their shoulders. King almost seems like an anachronism, but that's part of his appeal, that conservatism is what gives him a level of respect that is almost impossible to ignore. And of course, the fact that he's a Baptist preacher gives him another level of respect, and that's key to his power in a way. I remember hearing many years ago that the King estate and the family were very, very protective of Dr. King's legacy. So in undertaking this project, what were your interactions with the King estate like? 
Well, the King of State announced pretty early that they did not plan to participate in this book. I did manage to interview several King family members, nieces, nephews, cousins, but three surviving children did not want to do interviews for my book. And that's okay. You know, I felt like I offered them many opportunities to, if they changed their mind. And I hope that they read the book and, and like it and find that uh, that I treated their story and their father's story respectfully. But I don't really understand, you know, the business side of it. And I just decided to do my thing and and, and leave them be. Since the book has been published and you've been on a book tour, and I'm sure you've run across several other people who've shared stories of their interactions with Dr. King. Are there any of those that you would love to put in the uh, the paperback edition when it eventually comes out? <laughs> oh, well, first of all, let me just say that the response to the book has been so gratifying because people really do seem eager to connect with him again, you know, on a human level. And I think people find that that his words and his example are still really not just needed, but still really inspiring, even on, in our cynical age. And yeah, I've met more people who who had encounters with King who met him along the way. And it's been great. I'm collecting them, and, and I maybe I will be able to get a few of them into the paperback. Now, I will have to say, since Book Talk originates from the Memphis Public Library, the Benjamin L. Hooks Central Library, in fact, that I was a bit confused when you didn't have a tour stop scheduled for Memphis on promoting your book. I've been trying. Uh, call me. Somebody in Memphis, call me. I want to come and, and speak there. Uh, we're still working on it, and I'm hoping maybe before the end of the year I, I can make something happen. But yes, uh, Memphis is an important, obviously a hugely important part in King's life, and not just because his life ended there, but I would love to get there. Has there been a chance for you to look at another topic for your next book, or are you still just in King mode? Oh, I'm thinking about it. I'm doing some research. I haven't settled on anything yet. King is a tough act to follow. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've really been gratified by is that the response to the book seems to be in part, I think, because he inspires us still. And we we need more figures who can inspire us in these complicated, bitter days with there's so much pessimism out there. So I'm hoping that my next book will be about a figure who is and maybe not as inspiring as King because he's a tough guy to top. But, you know, at least somebody who I feel like, you know, deserves to share that same rarefied air. So there's no interest in you to do something a bit more lighthearted and say, you know, <laughs> hey, let's let's uh, back off from the, the import of the world and just have a good time. <laughs> well, I wouldn't rule that out. But, you know, what I, I'm trying to write the, the most important, interesting stories that I can. It takes five or six years to write a good biography. And it's not a decision that I enter into frivolously. It's got to be something I really want to live with and feel passionate about. I remember hearing that there will be a new set of uh, tapes made available from the FBI in 2027. So did you have any thoughts of saying, you know, maybe I should hold off until those come out? Well, I thought about it, but then I thought I didn't want to wait. I wanted to do this book while there were still people alive who knew King to talk to. And I feel like we've got the transcripts for most of those tapes already. So we have the, the, the building blocks and I'm not sure that the tapes are going to add that much and they might not even be released. You know, there's still um, people trying to keep them suppressed. So rather than, you know, enter into unknown territory or to wait for something that may or may not happen, I thought the best thing to do was to proceed as quickly and as responsibly as I could. And I'll just follow up when those tapes are released and see if there's anything in there worth including. And, and I'll you know put an updated edition of the book if necessary. How did COVID affect your work on the book? I was lucky that I began researching before COVID hit and I was able to travel and visit most of the key sources who I wanted to interview. People like Andrew Young and Harry Belafonte and Dick Gregory and James Lawson, Bernard Lafayette, Juanita Abernathy, June Dobbs Butts, 
once COVID hit, it was actually in some ways an advantage because all of those folks were stuck at home and they were happy to answer the phone when I called <laughs> and to talk for, for long hours. Sometimes, you know, I, I called every day for a week or two at a time and they were happy to have the company and I was lucky to get, you know, more time with them. So it worked out okay. I didn't enjoy uh, being stuck at home, but I made the best of it. And like, and, and it was also difficult because there were archives that I wanted to visit and I couldn't because they were shut. So I had to wait a lot longer to get some of this archival material. And I was blessed that some of these wonderful archivists were willing to go into the office and digitize items for me that I couldn't see place my own hands on. So it, it, it required some, uh, some improvisation for sure. Now, I didn't get a chance to look at the, the end notes and, and the, the end matter of the book. Did you read Aram Gadsusian's book on the Meredith March? Yeah, I did. That was a terrific book. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that both you and he had written about sports figures and then transferred into the, the civil rights era from there because he had written about uh, Bill Russell in one of his earlier books. Right. And I think Taylor Branch also, uh, I think he co-wrote Bill Russell's autobiography. So, you know, one of the beautiful things about sports is that it has always been a force for change. And, you know, many Americans find it easier to embrace change and, and embrace integration in the sporting world or in the music world or in the entertainment world prior to the political world, prior to other aspects of our lives. So sports has been a great vehicle for, for change and it's a great vehicle for, for storytelling. Well, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us in the, these past two episodes. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to let more people know about your wonderful book, King. I appreciate you taking the time for me. Thank you so much. Jonathan Igg is the author of King, A Life, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Stephen Usri, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.